Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. She's a vocal producer, performance coach, a motivational speaker, and a songwriter and recording artist. It's Jennifer McGill. How are you doing today, Jennifer? I am awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to learn more about your journey and your rise to the challenge. Mm-hmm. So we start off with each of our guests. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? So I am from a very small town, Denison, Texas. It's the twin city of Sherman, small, small population. And I grew up on about an acre of land running around on the gravel roads in my bare feet, uh, you know, trying to avoid snakes and other live creatures and um, singing whenever I got the chance. And when I was very young, um, I think my first stage performance was in Kindercraft, which is sometime before kindergarten. Um, we had a little church stage, and I had memorized the children's version of The Wizard of Oz. So they made me Dorothy, and I put on some huge silver shoes, and I had a koala hand puppet that was Toto, and I just did the whole thing and sang the big song. And when I was seven, I, I asked my mother, how can I get a crown like the Miss Texas pageant gets, you know? And so then that, that spurred us into this duo rehearsal performance of, you know, mother-daughter tag team just getting into these talent contests, which became my sport. So a lot of people say soccer, softball, baseball. Literally, I was a vocal gladiator. As soon as I was seven, I would, I would step on stage, leave it bloodied, win all the stuff, and then thank you, and then I would leave and then go, go play on the, you know, play on the country roads and, you know, just enjoy my little crown while it was still getting dirty in the mud and all the things. So very, very early I knew that I wanted to be a singer. No matter what that looked like, that's, that's what I wanted. Did you have any singers that you looked up to or were inspired by? I think the first one was Barbara Streisand because that, my mother and I shared that love. I discovered Whitney Houston pretty early. I could not stop playing the Wiz album with um, Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, like this, this whole cast of the movie characters, could not stop playing that. And then of course there's Celine Dion. So then everyone that sort of follows after that, those, ty- those types, you know, everybody that I absolutely adore is, falls in one of those categories like Kelly Clarkson and uh, just all the belters, all the high belters. But really if I could pick a hybrid, it's Whitney and Celine right there. Two iconic people right there. When you were going on stage, did you kind of like the theatric side of songs or music or were you more trying to stay with the pop side? or you wanted to do both? You know, I'll, the joke is that I was very theatrical. So I wouldn't have been able to stay away from that side if, if I tried. Um, so yes, I was all about the drama on stage. And uh, you can see just uh, through everything that's recorded, you can see all of the movements, all of the hand motions, you know, and a lot of my fans, like that's something that <laughs> was endearing for them to see me <laughs> just continue to do all this dramatic flair. And it's because that's, from the beginning of times how my mother and I had rehearsed, you know, when she was showing me how to tell the story, I would use my hands, but you know, that was like a, uh, like a child's version of showing your hands. And so that really stuck a little longer than I wanted it to. Uh, but then I went to NYU, um, and learned actual, you know, dramatic technique. I wanted to study the craft a lot. So I am technically a thespian, like I'm a theatric, (laughs) no matter, no matter what genre I'm singing, you know, I'm always trying to tell that story and I have a special love for that kind of live show performer, for sure. As you were growing up in singing, were you able to kind of branch out out of performing at church and go to like maybe some bigger stages? You know, 
it did escalate quickly because that was the beginning. It was performing for the Lions Club, going to all those talent competitions, like between seven and 10 years old. Um, and then my, my last big competition, or maybe my first, honestly, it was, there was not a, a lot that had a huge, huge stage, but I did go to Tampa, Texas, or Pampa, Texas, whichever. I think it was Pampa. <laughs> it reminds me of diapers, so I'm pretty, pretty sure it was Pampa. Um, anyway, so... I went to Pampa, Texas, and on, on the road to this July 4th competition, I turned 10, which put me in a new category. And it was a huge venue. There were many layers of, of auditions and competitions. It wasn't just a, a one, one number and you're done. I won my category, okay, at 10 years old. Now, who I met in this same category, and we joke about it today, we, we laugh, I met a future coworker and former Mouseketeer, former fellow Mouseketeer, Chasen Hampton, who was at the top of that same age category. And we like, we were there head to head all the way through the end. And we joke he was a little bit of a sore loser, but we, lo we love him always. Like he's my brother now. And then we, as, you're, as you may be progressing into this conversation, then we ended up together on a show for many, many years. And we are still Mouska family today. What was the most challenging part about growing up and being and traveling to all those different competitions? Were you able to kind of have that childhood like a child would want or you were fine doing all these kinds of things? So yes, this, this is a very, this is a big question because a lot of what I focus on these days is encouraging and navigating other people's journeys through their entertainment careers based on the problems and the obstacles and the challenges that I really did have to go through that I wasn't understanding at the time were obstacles and challenges. I was just sort of heading into a sandstorm or, or trying to go into battle with a needle versus a sword. I just had no idea all the stuff that was coming my way. So um, I would say from seven years old, the issue was I learned that competition the, the kind I liked was based on my talent. But I understood that there was this other competition going on around me, which was the beauty competition. And I didn't like it at all. I wasn't interested. I didn't understand it. How can one person be the most beautiful? I just, that was something I couldn't figure out the competition of. I could figure out how you can sing the highest and the loudest and maybe win. I get it. I, you know, that made more sports sense to me. Um, when I progressed into, at 10 years old, signing a contract with the Disney Channel, with Blue Wave Productions for the new Mickey Mouse Club, where I then started working with Chase again, um, there was a very important day that came around where I would say that production brought my attention to maybe it was a competition of beauty around me. Maybe it mattered what I looked like or didn't look like. And I started struggling. About 11 years old, 12 years old, I was told by production not to, not to gain any more weight, but I was 12. So I think my family struggled with how to handle that as parents, um, how, to, how to help your kid eat well, but not withhold, not punish for how they look, you know what I'm saying, or how their body is changing and growing. But for me, it wasn't about the food. It was about this growing truth. I mean, it was an untruth, but I was treating it like it was becoming a truth that I was never going to be physically good enough to do what I wanted to do in this business. I, I would be held back because of how I looked. It was a growing question 
which it felt over time kept getting answered with, yep, that's exactly right. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, and then it turned into a very, very hard to get over a challenge, if you will. I, yeah, I really had to rise above this challenge of getting over what I look like on the outside and why does that matter? Yeah, that's the hard part because definitely at a young age, you're not thinking about the kind of what you look like on the outside. You're just trying to enjoy everything you're doing and it puts a lot of stress on you probably that, okay, now I gotta rethink, okay, what am I wearing? What do I look like? What do I mm -hmm. now, like you said, what do I gotta eat? And for some people it's like, I don't wanna think about that. I just wanna enjoy it. Like you, like you said, you enjoyed the competition of the talent side, not the beauty side. That's right. And, you know, to take a step back from it all, I really understand that all parts of show business are fair in show business. It's show business. And so everyone auditions for parts. You dress a certain way to get a certain part. And then the next day you may be wearing another outfit. So as an adult, I can healthily understand that part of creating your look is for the purpose of what you're showing and the job you're supposed to be getting. I can totally appreciate that. And it's any business's right to cast who they think is going to represent what they need. And I think then the disconnect is, and what I can understand now is, that was just a season where show business wasn't really embracing non-skinny girls, mm -hmm. at least. Yeah, and, and that's okay. It was a season. I mean, it's not okay. But it's fine because now people are evolving. When I see the Disney Channel, when I see kids shows, when I see any kind of shows now, uh, movies all the way down the screen, etc. way more diversity, way more variety. So for a long time, I have not been as unhappy about what show business means as far as um, how people can get cast. But my job, like my passion throughout all the different pieces of my career is to continue that through line with young people that you have to know who you are from the inside out. Because when someone comes to you and says, I don't want you to gain any more weight, you need to be able to be free to process that in a way that you can understand the business side. Hey, maybe this is an opportunity for me to actually get healthy before my health becomes a problem, right? That's nice, that would be nice. Or this is not the job for me, thank you, goodbye. Thank you so much for the opportunity, right? We need to be able to stand on our own from the inside out perspective of ourselves and know when to say no, when to say yes. Because when we feel trapped in a situation because we think, okay, I just need to people please. I just need the job that bad. Imagine all of the different ways that show business can tear someone down from the inside out. The choices that we make because we think we don't have a choice. Yeah. I think people nowadays, they kind of want to be a people pleaser and they want to just say yes, because they're like, well, I have no choice, but I've, I've had that experience where I was always a yes person, but then kind of over time, I started to say, okay, I got to think what's best for me. Like I have to be confident in my own skin and not let someone else dictate what I do. And it's a great, that's a great um, advice that you're giving is people got to find that confidence in their own skin and showcase who they are as a person. You're absolutely right. You're never past your prime of purpose. I mean, I think that's something that a lot of women past a certain age, it's different for everyone. Um, even taking away the show business, right? Even with that, everything I've spoken about, this is something that I have, have grappled with in, in public high school, 
uh, middle school as well, you know, asking, like starting to compare myself to other people. Once you get out of high school, it's, well, are you going to college? Well, what degree are you getting? Well, are you, what job are you getting after that? Well, are you dating anyone? Well, are you getting engaged, married, children? Are you going to keep your job? Are you going to get, a, I mean, it never ends if we don't end it. It never ends if we don't end it. So we have to understand that that you're never past your prime of purpose. Your purpose may have a different timeline than everyone else's. But no matter what, if it's not fulfilling you and making you feel like, yes, I, I'm, I'm doing what I'm created to do in a healthy way, it doesn't matter what the paycheck is if you're not going to be around to spend it or if you're going to be so miserable that yeah. no amount of money is going to make you happy. I mean, that's what I try to really focus on with young stars, you know, young up and coming recording artists, especially you got to know what you're exchanging for this fame and fortune that you think is going to solve all of your problems, you know, and it's the same for anybody. Did you have a, when you were doing these, those competitions, what was going to be that dream job that you were going to go for? You know, I really did want to be Whitney Houston. I wanted to be a recording artist. That was the number one. Like I wanted to be number one pop female vocalist of all time.com. Really? Yeah. Like that. I mean, I only had until 10 years old to think along those lines before I became a Mouseketeer. And then I, I really was in full out television production for seven years. Like my whole high school from fifth grade to senior year in high school. That was my focus. So in a way, I was very satiated. I got to be a recording artist every week. I got to sing and dance. I had live stuff, uh, pre-taped stuff. We were performing in front of a live studio audience. We had acting classes and did, did comedic skits. We were doing media interviews. I toured with an album that we made called MMC. I was on a USO tour. I had fans all over the world, right? This is before social media. Um, and even then, we were getting letters upon letters. I mean, I was in teen magazines. I didn't have to focus on anything else, you know, I knew, and I knew even beyond that time that I wanted to stay in this business. I really wanted to be able to sing for the rest of my life. And I didn't know that really after that time, after college, when I'd finished my training in that capacity, that's really when the big identity crisis came because all of a sudden I had to, I had to deal with Capitol records. And then all of a sudden at 21, I was too old because the bubblegum pop movement happened and people that I love dearly, like Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake, and then some high school friends, Joey Fatone, uh, even Luis Fonzi, the Despacito guy, right? Like everybody started getting famous. And all of a sudden my type, and especially what I looked like on the outside, it wasn't lining up with what was super hot in pop right then. So my window, I just kind of missed it, right? Between Whitney and Adele, I just kind of missed my moment, you know? So I did struggle for at least a decade, if not decades, with what did I do wrong? Why can't I look the way they want me to? Why can't I be famous? And then, you know, what really helped, spoken sarcastically, other people asking me, you're so good, why aren't you famous? Oh. You're so good, why aren't you famous? And that would be like, also asking me, you're so adorable. Why aren't you married? You see how that type of, I want to acknowledge how much I think of you, but then attach a due date to your success based on what I think of you. It's so dangerous, you know, and, and it happens to everybody. I mean, we give compliments thinking we're giving compliments, but when we attach that, why aren't you here? 
yet. It's not a compliment anymore. That's, that's where the challenge comes in, for sure. So how did you find out about the opportunity for them to, uh, to be a Mouseketeer? So one of my very last competitions, it was a smaller competition, like a ballroom style. There was an excellent judge. She was a children's agent. Her name's Julie Erickson. She's still around in Dallas. And, you know, we send each other little messages. But on a handshake with my mother, after she saw what I did that day, she, she represented me. And one of the very first auditions she got me, the only one I remember, is for the Mickey Mouse Club movie that was going to be called why because we like you and it was going to be about the original Mouseketeers from the 50s that show and i did actually get cast in that movie i was either going to be darlene or doreen depending on how much i grew by the time they were filming so they had a few kids lined up you know to help out and then the writer's strike happened in la i think it, it was late 80s and uh, that movie got completely canceled. But the same casting director who went on to cast all of the seasons of the new Mickey Mouse Club from the 90s, he sent my videotape to the final auditions for the series. So I met everyone just at the final audition in Orlando, Florida. We went into a ballroom in the Grand Floridian and I met uh, originals like Lindsay Alley, uh, Chase Hampton, again, that's where we got reconnected. You know, uh, Dee Dee Magno was in that group. Brandy Brown was there. And yeah, we just, we did a, a very, very, uh, I would say intense few hours of auditioning and really just jumping through all the hoops. And that was the first time I'd ever traveled anywhere beyond really my, my comfortable Texas surroundings. We'd only gone on a few family vacations through the years. Mind you, I'm only 10, right? Yeah. We've only been on a few family vacations, maybe Six Flags, maybe Wet n Wild, maybe. <laughs> and all of a sudden, an executive producer is like taking me by the hand and leading me into Epcot Center. And then I'm in the Grand Floridian auditioning in this big fancy space. You know, it was just very overwhelming for me, but literally a dream come true. So talk about that first season or the first year you're on the show. What was the experience like for you? So uh, my family had, had no experience with anything show business beyond um, just a live competition, you know, like, like the pageants and stuff. And so it was all very new to us. And, you know, like I said, we had never been on this kind of legitimate vacation where there's a huge theme park involved. And this was the first time we had stepped into Disney World, first time that I'd ever been in Orlando. And so the whole experience was new and really surreal because I had nothing to compare it to. The only thing that was familiar was when someone put a microphone in my hand and asked me to look somewhere and do stuff. That I completely, you know. So the job itself was actually the easiest part of everything that was going on. I was the second youngest in the cast, uh, starting with the pilot. Uh, Lindsay Alley is our youngest. And then there was me, there was also Josh Ackerman. We were all very close in age. and there were a lot of older teenagers to us. I mean, even if it was just a year apart or two years, that was a great distance between 10 and 12 or 11 and 14, you know? So even 11 and 13 for that matter, you know, a lot of changes. And so I, I really did feel out of place socially because I would say that's, that's those inside uh, doubts kind of starting to come out though. I personally was very uninhibited, very excited, um, very confident. And like I've said, a theatric, I was definitely a ham, which is one of the reasons why I was on the show. So I was great at their comedy skits. I happened to sing well, and I was great at comedy. 
you know, great. They, everything else was going to work out. We had these amazing dance classes that I was okay at, right? But I remember years later with all of this hard, intensive work that we would, we would sit down with a vocal session and all of us would have all these pieces of paper. I mean, we had binders full of scripts and lyrics and sheet music, which we honestly didn't need because we learned everything either from someone plunking it on the piano or we would record it in our big old cassette tape Walkman situations or uh, we would uh, have those cassette tapes sent to us and we would learn through ear training. So the sheet music kind of went out of the window after a little while. Uh, but I would say that after all these different intense studies of acting, voice, and all these hours of dance, I remember a few years later, still on the show, I went to something called Mouse in the House. And um, I was the prize for a fan to uh, welcome me into her home life and show me around all of the different things that she does in a day. And I went to her, her dance class and I learned the whole dance that day, right? I just went into the dance class. They taught me everything. We were going for it. And at the end of the class, I said, how long have you guys been working on that dance? And they said, you know, pretty much the whole year. And I was like, okay, you know, I, and, and my point wasn't to, uh, you know, embarrass anyone. And hopefully I didn't because, you know, every, of course, everybody learns in different ways. But I, I had not realized how intense my training had been. Every, like all week, we just show up Monday through Friday, let's say, or Tuesday through Saturday. Every season was a little different and I was there the whole time. So I can say they were varied. But you show up to work maybe in the morning from nine to lunch, about three hours worth of school, because every minor on that set had to be at least three hours into school per day. So if you had a heavy schedule that day, you do your three hours, take lunch, and then it was voice, then it was recording, then it was dance, or it was comedy skits. Now, let's say we are at Wednesday, morning is school, and then after lunch, I do another dance, another different comedy skit. Oh, wait, they've changed half of that script. So now all the pages are different colors. Highlight again and let's go over it, okay? And then we learn a new song. And then maybe I do an interview. Wednesday, come in, finish dance, record second harmony. Oh, guess what? The script has changed again. We got to highlight. I mean, it was constant absorption of information and then extracted, right? Back and forth. So our brains were heavily exercised in memory and recall and, and taking direction. And then you have a day where you're in school all day because your, your schedule's light, but then next week you're gonna use those five or six hours you banked because you're gonna go on location and shoot a video in 108 degree weather <laughs> in a pasture <laughs> with wardrobe ladies spraying your face. <laughs> in Texas. You know, in Texas, right. And so, you know what I'm saying? It, it, was, it was an absolute joy because that is what lights me up is being in production, taking direction, spitting it back out, people pleasing, of course, doing it right, getting the, getting the kudos and, and having so much variety. So I can appreciate that no matter what class I step into or who I talk to who's my same age, there are a few people who are in constant boot camp show business training from fifth grade through their senior year in high school, then extended it four years into NYU musical theater training right? And then went on to continue to do that for, for the rest of their days as far as just staying in that business and learning. And so I feel extremely grateful that I have had so much of that come my way 
naturally, you know, and that I still don't feel like I'm ever done learning. Yes, that just the schedule that you just said, I'm like, at a young age, that's a lot for- Yeah, yeah. The first time I stopped working and just went to school was college. (laughs) And that's a whole different- That's a whole different life. Wow. I mean, but it kind of, like you said, it kind of taught you and prepared you for like after and being in the industry still and you kind of understand, okay, like if you're working with younger stars, I went through my experience, now I can understand what's the different outside perspective and how they might be feeling and going through that. Wow. Yeah. So when you were doing episodes, I guess it was live, you said live and tape. Correct. We, we filmed in front of a live studio audience, but almost nothing we did was literally live okay. with, with, no, with no edits. Right. What was your favorite kind of skit that you did? Like, was it the singing, the dancing, the comedy? My, my absolute favorite was music video production. And it's because the arc of how you create that product is all of my favorite things. So you sit down and you learn the song. You either choose which one you want to do, or you choose which part in the duet you want, or you figure out your harmonies. You learn, learn, learn. And then my favorite part is when you go into the recording studio and you actually put it all together. And then you're, of course, at that point, you're directed. Back then, this was before anything digital. So everything was tape and you had to get it right until you got it right because there's no auto-tune, there's no digital helping. If you sing it out of pocket, which means a little before or after when you're supposed to come in, you gotta do it again because they can't move it for you later. If you forget a word, you have to do it again because they can't cut it in later, right? Uh, so it was, it was wonderful detailed stuff that my brain thrives on. It's all those fun details that I absolutely adore. And then you're working with so many people back then, right? It wasn't like I would just get a track, like today I could just get a track sit in my little home studio, put my microphone here, put my headphones on, la, 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 fix everything, send it back. That's, that's super fast. No, it was a whole literal production to do a production back then. Uh, so yeah, after you record, then of course they fix everything and then you start learning your dance moves and you start, and it's exciting the day that you get your tape when you're hearing your version of a cover song, your version of a song you've heard on the radio. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's me singing the song. You learn all your dance stuff, right? But then you go show up at a video shoot at least a week, if not a month later, and then you're lip syncing to whatever it is that the the scenario of the video is for, you know, and on the Mickey Mouse Club, we did tens of twenties of thirties of videos. Like, like we, I'm sure we, we easily hit a hundred, if not 300 videos, easy, at least a hundred. Okay. Now I wasn't in all of them, but I got to watch a lot of them if I wasn't in them and just everything that it took to film all of the. The, the dry ice used to be a big deal, right? With all the smoke and the lights, you know? I mean, it was just awe-inspiring to me. And then someone or many someones went into a room and cut it all up and put it together. It just blew my mind. And so then of course the final products, you know, and that's what I got to see. I just loved that process so much. That was all of my favorite moments. I also love making people laugh, but I just didn't walk into the show knowing I was going to be good at comedy. Mm -hmm. I just knew I loved, I loved that process too. So as far as comedy, my favorite thing was just 
the comedic timing and learning the script and how outlandish all of our scenarios were. The one thing I hated about comedic scripts and skits was all of the food because you're either throwing food or you're sitting at a table for hours with this burger that used to smell good an hour ago. Ooh. And now it's just no, or you're, or you're covered in food and then you have to reset. So then you have to get out of the food and then look like you're awesome again and do the That's food again good. and get, Oh, it's gross. It's so gross. And the whole set smells crazy afterwards. Right. So it's funny, super funny, but just the bane of my existence, how much it, I mean, just how it smelled and yeah, that was grody. It's super like grody. Watching it. We get a laugh out, but behind the scenes of you guys making it, it's probably like, no. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like totally brilliant from your end, but we're just like, I'm trying not to yak right now because this smells so stupid. (laughs) Oh, I do have one more favorite moment. My other favorite moment was somehow I got pinned with stupid costumes (laughs) and um, we talked briefly that your mother is a fan. Yes. And I have two big songs that the fans adore the most and probably close to number one, if not number one, besides my single track from the, uh, the MMC album is stupid costume blues. And you can find it on YouTube. I actually sang it at, at last month's stage at concert. Um, but stupid costume blues was written for me to perform live. So that was something where even though we taped it a few different times, in front of a live studio audience, the man playing the guitar, the man playing the piano, and me singing are all live, all live to tape, um, which was very, very rare. And the reason why I got to do that song was because of all of the crazy costumes somehow I had started to get pegged with that whole season. And then I believe the next season, I got to wear around my neck a full boa constrictor and I never thought I would do, I never would have thought that would have been any part of my life. Um, and I wasn't deathly afraid. Now I hate snakes, but usually the ones I hate take me by surprise and they're really moving fast and they're kind of, you know, they're all over the place. This one was handed to me by a trainer. I got to work with this snake before I put it around my neck. I understood that it's okay. Everything's, and I just trusted the trainer. I just trusted that this was going to be okay. Uh, and yeah, that was amazing to, what was more amazing for me was the hours I spent with it on my neck, like around me waiting, like for blocking and for taping, uh, versus the few seconds I had it on during the actual skit. It was very cool to just sit there with it and be like, this is okay. (laughs) This is all right. It's okay. You know? Uh, so yeah, a lot of fun little tidbits and just odd stories that just pop pop in my memory, you know, when I start talking about the uh, six and a half, seven years that I did all of this. It's, it basically was your childhood. Was that? It was. Yes, that's something that I, I really I really like to help people understand the the compartmentalization of. I had a normal childhood. This is going back to an earlier question you had. My normal childhood did not look like everyone else's. It felt very normal to me because I was doing all of the things I really wanted to do. I literally worked and mostly lived at Disney World, right? So my childhood was awesome, okay? So bad. (laughs) It was so awesome. So there was that. But then, you know, I had to do well in school. 
you know, there's all of those other kid things that I needed to do. Um, I cared about what I wore. It took hours to do my hair in high school by myself. You know, I, I did musicals. We went to thespian competition. I killed it. We even won a state. Uh, I won duet musical at state. And I think I won group musical at state, right? So, I mean, I had a very full childhood. It was just way, way more magnified as far as how many people were sharing parts of my childhood all across the world. You know, and so that's the part that I can't wrap my head around. That I was always being watched. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that I find more normal than other, other young people would, of course, you know. These days, though, I don't know. Social media, you choose when you're going to be watched, I guess. And I didn't. You know, I was a tourist attraction. You know, the Disney MGM Studios backlot backstage tour would show, they would just walk past us, the plexiglass, and it, like, we would have tours all the time, watching us do all sorts of things, including eat lunch, you know, <laughs> you know, and we're all like, hi, <laughs> just trying to eat, but that's cool, you know, so it was absolutely not the norm, but to me, it was very appropriate, it's what I was meant to do, I feel that through, through and through, write a song. There you go, inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about people that you've worked with on the set, and when you mentioned the boa constrictor, it's like, I guess Britney Spears copied you at the DMA. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, hers was way prettier than mine was, that's for sure. <laughs> I loved that I wonder what Jennifer did back then. So beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of that. Good job, girl. You, you repackaged it well. I just never <laughs> even picked up on that. I loved that performance. I loved that. Oh, my other favorite performance of Britney really quick was, I don't even remember, I don't even remember if it was the Teen Choice Awards or like VH1, but she had just gotten this sassy haircut and it was all heavy and it swung all cool. <laughs> she was killing it. Yeah, that was, it was basically right. It was, it was probably right before the snake or no, I guess it was right after she got a haircut. I'm bad with but, the timelines. Oh I know. I just, I, I, me too. Photos. I just know the visual, right? I'm like, her with the snake, her with that haircut. Killed it. Just killed it. But I know they were close. Oh, so full of life. Yeah, just just love her heart. I could go on and on about her her work ethic and just her her passion for the stage was just one of my favorite things about her. And a true mystery because she was so girl next door approachable and really left it all alone when she got off the stage. That was very similar to me. Um, how we're like, I'm going to kill it on stage. And then it's like, okay, where's lunch? Where's, where's my burger? I'm good. Like, is there water? Cool. What's up? Like I, not even a second thought until it was time to focus again. And, you know, I, I really loved that about her. She was so little when I met her, she was 11. Mm -hmm. Well, you worked with her, Christina Aguilera, Ryan Gosling, mm -hmm. bunch of Justin, Just Justin Timberlake, like all Carrie Russell, JC Shazay. Nikki Deloach, who is like Hallmark's queen right now. I love the Hallmark channel. Yeah. So they came in, I mean, you search on ID, IDMD, they only worked like three to four episodes. When you found out like where they went from now where they are, what was the mindset going through like? Were you kind of like upset that, okay, they didn't work here that long, but look at where their career is now. Oh, of course. Yes. They were the age range to really take the pop, the bubblegum pop music uh, trend by storm. And in all fairness, they were at the very beginning. I mean, they were, they built it. They were part of that. 
Um, there was a time, I mean, as far as Britney Spears, she came out first, you know, that alongside the whole Backstreet Boys in sync kind of vibe, you know, in sync got this really great break, you know, through a Disney Channel special, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but and, you know, Joey Fatone from that group was someone that was killing it with thespian society with me in high school, right? We we won that group musical together at state, right? Like that's where I knew him from. So to see, let's say my boys up there doing what they're doing, you know, um, to take a step back from that moment on the Disney channel, I remember I was in college and those guys had a house uh, close to me in Orlando. So when I came home from college, uh, I would be invited over to watch their European tour rehearsals. So I would watch them dancing and I would be able to see, okay, this one needs a little bit more work, right? Like this one's catching up. Good for you, guy. You're doing great. You know, this one's coming up. I could tell that they were really working very hard and that everyone was at a certain level of, okay, I'm, I'm working on this and this and this. It wasn't done, but it was, they were doing great. Um, and then the Disney Channel changed everything as far as America is concerned, right? You know, they had started doing some European stuff, but then all of a sudden they were a household name here. And it jarred me just as much as it would have jarred any of them, you know, the same thing with Brittany. Um, to see these amazing kids out there, my first wave of emotion was like a proud grandma or an aunt who would clip all of the magazine articles out and I'd keep it in a thing, a binder or whatever I did. This was all again before digital, really. There was, I think the best you could do was print out a picture from the internet and put it in a notebook. That's how you could save pictures. I think that's what it was. You probably weren't even born, but that's what was going on, <laughs> right? You missed that glorious moment <laughs> in our history. You really did. That was something, getting creative, right? So. So yeah, like I was really, really excited. And I did hear, you know, Christina, she was having a little trouble getting her album out because she, I mean, everybody knows how deeply talented and how interesting her vocals would have even just been in that beginning before we knew her as the famous Christina Aguilera. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, competing with the bubblegum pop, it was like, can we find the bubblegum for you? She was almost in danger of my fate, which was you're kind of too mature, too much of that vocal, I don't know if this is the right time. They had to basically wait for the right song. They had to find that right song. And I've had a conversation with that songwriter. He's told me the story, you know, it, I can't disclose everything because I haven't gotten permission. But, you know, that was a really key element. And, and that, spoke to, that spoke volumes to me when I was on my own record journey, because I, can, I understand it's not just about your talent or what you look like. It has to be the right time, the right team. Yeah. Right. And then the fans have to have to make it happen. The trend has to be set. And yeah, you can throw a bunch of money at stuff like that and get very far. But there there are just other elements that are out of one person's control. And that person would be the artist. You know, we, we just can't control everything that's needed to get famous. Right. So I really appreciated their journeys and knowing what I knew that it wasn't just all easy peasy overnight success that they worked hard for everything they got these kids went straight to LA after the new Mickey Mouse Club versus me going to college to find myself because mm -hmm. I had spent my whole childhood being a professional and I didn't really know who I was as a person I didn't really have that time put in to just be and be a student and just see what that is so that was really a game changer for me I think for the better I think that if I had gone off and won this deal and made it happen, I believe I would have taken any pill, gotten any kind of surgery, dated anyone that anyone said I should date in order to create the formula 
that they wanted in order for me to be famous. And that would have been the wrong choice. Mm. I didn't know that then. So the second wave was extremely bitter and jealous, extremely, like I said, decades of confirmation that, yep, you're too tall, your skin isn't the right color because we already have three of you or we already have four of that. You know, wh whether you're blonde or whatever color, you know, however curvy you are, everything that you are is not right for what we're looking for. Now, remember what I said about a business is allowed to cast who they want. Yeah. They're allowed to hire and fire who they need to in order to get the job done. So now I understand no harm, no foul. I was auditioning for something that, that you weren't looking for. Okay. But at the time it really made me feel like I'm not good enough with all the stuff that comes out of my mouth that I've won trophies for. And I, I basically paid for NYU with, with what comes out of my mouth and how I look and all the talent that I have. You're telling me that, that I can't get a record deal and do what these other kids are doing, you know? And the short answer is yes, I, I wouldn't have done exactly what they did. And maybe that's what was needed. You know, something that was closer to that type of presentation. Um, and maybe they just didn't need another one. You know, even Mandy Moore was already out by the time I was singing for people at Sony, like Celine Dion did all those years ago, you know? Um, so it was a hard, hard lesson to learn. And so in this very specific time frame, I had to rise to the challenge of getting over this idea that if I'm not Whitney Houston, my dream is dead. That was a huge challenge for me. That if this isn't gonna happen, everything that is me, everything I've worked for, everything I've loved and dreamed of, it's dead. That's what I was dealing with. That challenge was with me for years and years and years. And all through that process, I was still teaching, I was still working in the business, I was traveling the world in bands and doing all sorts of cool stuff. But it would bug me that I couldn't go do that one thing that was my original dream. And then really life caught up and technology caught up. And nowadays, I'm actually married to a producer and I, I could make music anytime I wanted to, really. But what we have found is serving other people and other artists and developing them and growing other people's dreams are so much more rewarding than making stuff all about me. Mm -hmm. and, and listen, don't get me wrong, show business, you gotta make stuff about you because you're presenting yourself. Yeah. But being able to compartmentalize that and understand that really the bigger picture is how can I use all that I've learned to help other people? That is now woven into every single piece of my career. I think a lot of people can take that, like how you went on your path. So like for me, I kind of, I graduated with a sports management degree in college. And so sports was my life and I wanted to do that. But coming out of college, I was like, I don't think I'm ready to go the direction that I'm supposed to go. And like for your example, everyone went to LA and did the singing and all that. But for us, we went in a different direction because we were trying to develop skills, learn education and all that. And I feel that everyone has the path that they want to go. A lot of times with the show, we always, I always ask, what path are you going to take to rise to the challenge? It's one of those questions where it never ends. Like there's no set way that you're going to go. You're going to go in this direction if it works for you, or you're going to go into that direction. So you were talking about your transition out from the Musketeers or the Mickey Mouse Club. Talk about what was that next opportunity after college? 
I like to call the time right after college building from the ground up because I really did start over. I had all these seasons of television under my belt. I had experience with a record deal. I had this college degree of musical theater drama and I needed to go back home. I was done with New York. I was done with waiting for my life to begin um, in that capacity. And so I went back to Orlando and I actually lived with my parents for a few, probably about two years. Um, that's where a lot of the bubblegum pop, like I started clipping a lot of magazine articles and seeing what everyone was doing, but also that, that dichotomy of, I'm also getting a little anxious and a little bitter and a little, you know, so all that started happening when I started finding a job again, you know, and really even financially, I'd come back to this, you know, level playing field of, I remember I had a garage sale and the exact amount I made paid my, my phone bill, my cell phone bill that month. And I thought, okay, now, now we're talking like I'm 21, maybe 22. And I said, okay, God, I get it. As far as you and I are concerned, you're going to give me at least exactly what I need to get by. At least. At least I know that. Okay. That has still carried through decades later. That has never not been the case. I have always found support when the time was right or when the time was tough. And I'm forever grateful for that. Side note. Uh, so I just knew at that point, I really was going to be building from, from ground level up. And really, I don't know if I can, I'm trying to, to do the short version of it. What I found was when I would go audition for almost anything, I was able to fit into that show. Mm -hmm. And so I chose some very good shows to start building my Orlando career back towards this uh, reputation of, hey, I'm now adult and please hire me for things. And I showed up helping, just helping out this uh, organization singing a very difficult song and one of the directors from Walt Disney uh, music, I don't know, I don't know how I can... <laughs> uh, one of the directors from the auditioning music department of uh, Disney company, especially with Walt Disney World, that director of certain live groups uh, at Epcot Center was in the audience to see me perform this big song. And he invited me to audition for an acapella group for Epcot. And I got it and I got my equity card. So not only from the ground up did I find one of my, like I could say it's my second favorite job, this amazing acapella group where I had this amazing family. I was still learning because I had never really gone into acapella as a primary focus, right? I loved harmonies and building harmonies. So now as a full-time job, I would show up to Epcot Center again, <laughs> you know, back home, you know, I would show up to Walt Disney World, uh, still with a Disney ID, you know, I have just layers of Disney IDs in a scrapbook somewhere, you know, and now I have an equity card and I get to do these fantastic harmonies and then step out and do solos, come back into a family very similar to how it was with the Mouseketeers. And I was in love with that job and that job really treated me well. Um, yeah, so, so really, long story short, after college, building from the ground up my Orlando career, I did make my way into that priority category of top female belter singer um, for that Orlando area. And I existed there for many, many years until I felt the calling to start 
finding my next step, my next place to live. You know, I visited New York again. I spent some time in Hawaii. I did some incredible work with um, worship leader uh, ministry, dramatic musical ministry locally in Orlando. And then I ended up in Nashville and I thought, wow, really Nashville? Like the one thing I haven't labeled myself as is a country singer, even though I am from Texas and I, I can sing country music, but you know, why am I here? I'm sort of asking, why am I here? And that was about eight years ago. And from that time of waiting for that next step answer and knowing that this is where I'm supposed to be, but why? The why is still ongoing, but it is an incredible journey as far as what the heck am I doing now? It's a lot. When you, when you got to Nashville, what was the plans for you to do? No, like no dramatics here. My plan was to get into an apartment and wait. Okay. It was a little scary, you know? It's a little scary. My one friend in town, uh, was Jeff Savage, who has been a huge part in a lot of my later music, um, some of the other Mouseketeers music. You know, he's a big Mickey Mouse Club fan, but he's, he's our extended family. You know, he's one of our Mouseka brothers, uh, extremely talented Grammy award-winning producer. And he really helped me find some wonderful communities, including a church right there in the beginning. And so a lot of what I poured myself into in the very beginning was leading worship. And I went on to vocal coordinate for a church uh, to just go deeper and deeper into helping organize voices mm -hmm. and to help minister as well. And then that led into um, just very organically, I started writing um, little boy shows, little girl shows, teen and tween family shows that are Christian based, but that help young people find their strength in their faith, but to break it down in kid terms right? So that it's fun, but you can remember it. We had music to go with it. I wrote scripts upon scripts of these live show uh, pieces for a company. And so it was awesome to be part of that creative team. Uh, and then that led into this last season of, you know, the 2017 release of Unbreakable, which is, I think it's 16 songs, if, if it's one, you know, it's a lot of songs. But, but every, every song I co-wrote is autobiographical. And every single song talks about overcoming something, rising to the challenge, not feeling like, okay, maybe right now I don't have all of the weapons. I don't have all the tools. I feel alone. Maybe that's the moment you're in, but, and those songs map out all the different layers of emotions I've gone through, all of these different trenches and challenges, but on the other side, showing that there's always hope and strength and that I believe you're never alone. You know, and that was very important for me at the end of that really, really huge project to, to bite off and chew. Um, that was the reward was that then I was able to uh, hold, conduct a small course based on all of those lyrics, teach people through those lyrics, what I was talking about, what I went through, how it can apply to you, you know, and, and eventually I will have that course online for other people to take as well. Because that's how important these lyrics are. No matter, you know, if the, if the songs get old, if people forget about the project in general, that's fine. It's really about the ones who listen. They're learning through these lyrics that, that they can attach themselves to some of these journeys, that they're not alone in their travels, you know, and that there's always hope and light. That's, that, to my dying day, will be what, what I yell out with the last breath I have is all of that encouragement and that light and love that's, that's based in my faith, you know, very important for me. So 
I, I'm in love with that album because of that. Um, so that was the, you know, that's kind of leading up to today and just, you know, these last transitions, you know, after making that big album and everything that's been so wonderful coming through that, uh, a few music videos as well, you know, now, now I'm full on into artist development and uh, creating services that now help artists, families, um, people who feel like they're loners, right? Everything is to help build people back up. When you talk about creating the shows and stuff, did, did the skills that you had or you were learning during your Mickey Mouse Club days help you in helping what you were doing in Nashville? Yes, I, I have seen so many reasons, aha moments, where when I look back at what I used to do 24-7, you know, even just, even just the Mouseketeer days, mm -hmm. um, looking at the tools and the ear training and the eye training, the production, just absorbing what other people were doing for their jobs, so much of those elements stuck with me where I can see that I have a certain ear for things. That's why I teach. That's why I can, even online, hear a young person sing and say, okay, right here is where you're gripping, or okay, back here is where you're gripping, or it's right here in your jaw, right in the front. I can hear it like sonar, okay? That's very unique, and I wouldn't teach if I couldn't hear that stuff, right? Um, video production, we're about to launch uh, either at the end of August or, well, I'm sorry about the dates. You can figure this out as far as when you air, okay? Um, before the end of 2020, we will have launched milestone melodies and this is a big deal for my husband and myself because as i've said my husband is an excellent producer really my favorite producer and the heart and soul he puts into his music we want to create customized songs for milestone moments in people's lives right so instead of getting an engraved pen or an engraved ornament you can have a customized song and then on my side i bring to life a video that accompanies that so you have a commemorative one-of-a-kind hand-tailored video for a birthday anniversary graduation even to celebrate the passing of a loved one something that you don't want to deal with yourself let us help you and i could have never thought of making a business like that if i had not a few years ago started dabbling in video editing mm -hmm. i never would have thought that i would have been a good video editor but I have that 90s eye, the quick cutaways, those funny little blooper moments that you can add into, I, I mean, it's like playing. It's like puzzles to me. It's, it's such a joy to edit someone's stuff together and make it interesting and it stays active and you, know, you have filters and all this lighting and all the things. So I've, I've created many, many lyric videos for clients, many, many videos for myself and everything in between. And now I'm here saying, yep, this makes perfect sense to give back to people, to be able to serve them in this very new way that's hand tailored, special just for you. It's all about the client versus anything about us, right? And I just, I could not be more overjoyed that that's, that's happening, you know? And I wouldn't have had that kind of eye had I not scrutinized all of our videos and paid attention to why something looked better after you add smoke or why something looks better for contrast if you wear this color against this color. Just learning over time all of these shortcuts so that when I actually have material in front of me, I know exactly how I wanna make it happen. Or I develop it like a sculpture can say, um, 
I knew it was always in the log or in the rock. I just had to get all the other parts out of the way. That's how I feel about editing. It really is a journey. And I just never would have thought I could have done that. And I absolutely blame my childhood in production for even having the instincts to try something like that. And I absolutely love it. That's an awesome concept. Like the making a video or a song for someone for a milestone, like you never thought that that concept would have been happening or someone would already come up with that idea. But I think it's perfect because a lot of people, they want to be, like materialistic with gifts and stuff, but that's not a materialistic item. It's something that they can look back from years from now and see and still be a part of their life no matter, like a passing of someone. That's like a memory right there. And you're kind of getting personal with that first thing or your client and you're a part of that dream. And like how you said, you always have to have someone that support you. You're not alone. You're with that person and support for anything that they're going through or what the client is wanting. That's right. And that really is our heart for people. You know, we joke that my husband and I are actually both introverts. It's just that I grew up in the business. And so I really did learn how to push myself forward in a way that now it, it feels very natural, mm. you know, but, but being able to reach out to this many families for this many milestone moments or milestone melodies, you know, to be able to create this for people, I feel very satisfied that even if I'm not, if I don't have the energy to be in front of everybody at the same time all the time, I mean, no one can, especially right now, um, then at least that we can, we can reach out like this and connect and I can, we can do good yeah. for way more people than we ever could have uh, with other capacities or, you know, maybe focusing on self-promotion, et cetera, you know. Um, but yes, I agree. See, I'm, I'm a little bit of a minimalist besides all of the accolades that I keep on the wall. I try to keep them on the floor, <laughs> right? Besides all that, you know, I, I really don't want new stuff. I don't want a whole bunch of new stuff unless it, it's practical or logical, you know, or I'm replacing something. So, you know, if you're a minimalist, then this is something that you don't have to find a shelf for. You know, you can, you can store it digitally. It's, it's in the air. It's in the cloud, right? But it reaches everybody. Yeah. If you post it somewhere, then everybody understands the love and the perspective that you're, that you're wanting people to see for a loved one you know it's just one of the best ways to be able to honor someone and so it just it just checks all of my not only emotional boxes but those logic box a box sorry hmm uh, so this concept not only checks all the emotional boxes but it checks all those practical logical boxes that i like to, to file as well you know and so it just makes me happy all around and yeah if, if you if you have a if you want something engraved, that's always going to be there for you. But there's, there's no other company who is doing this at the level at which we are doing this. And I think that's on purpose because of how passionate we are about that customer service. That's definitely our edge. So we're really happy about this new venture. Thank you. <laughs> you talked about your album and how each song represents something that you learned or you're growing or something that you went through. If you had to pick one line from any of the songs on that album, that kind of you would want to tell someone listening to this interview, what would that line be? So my signature song from the album is called What I Know Now. And the very, I mean, really that whole song, I know you want, you want one line. I would say it's in the first two phrases. Um, More than a shooting star, you're so much stronger than you think you are. More than a flash in the pan, 
you can do more than you think you can. And if you continue, it's, um, it just talks about how we feel so small when we're in the midst of that challenge. We really do feel like we're under it. And then just having one person believe in you or to remind you who you are, to remind you that even if it looks bigger than you are, that's just perspective. And, and it's time. It's just time. And uh, by the end of that chorus, it says, um, they, like let's say the challenges, they're only four feet tall and you're so beautiful. If you could know what I know now. And so that song was dedicated to that 12 year old who was told all those years ago, don't gain any more weight. And the 11 year old who was told that if you tell anybody that, you know, I was gonna do something wrong, then you're in trouble. And that's a problem. That's a problem that everybody comes in contact with, that subtle bullying. You know, I was never punched. I was never hurt physically. But there was enough of, of those subtle threats and those pushes towards directions that, that felt wrong and felt um, demeaning that most of us have stored away somewhere just in little pieces of us. And again, like even though I wasn't outright bullied, I wasn't uh, smacked or anything physical, I suffered from the repercussions of letting those non-truths grow into truths about myself that I'm, I'm not enough or I'm too much, you know, and that is a universal problem. It's a universal challenge to tell yourself I am enough and I'm, I'm just enough. I'm exactly what I need to be and to actually believe it. Even if other people tell you otherwise, you know, um, the world is not always going to agree with your purpose, but it's all about perspective and how you're looking at that challenge. So yeah, I would say more than a shooting star, you're so much stronger than you think you are. I definitely can relate to that. I did an episode for this show on all about self-confidence and how everyone may be struggling with it, including myself, but it's how you take the steps to get over, like challenge yourself and get over it. And one thing with doing the show is, like I said, I was, I'm some normal person in this world and it's like, how do I get myself out there? Yes, I've had all the negative feedbacks. Oh, you're not gonna do much. You're not gonna get great people. And each day I make it a mission to kind of prove to those people that my passion is gonna get me to where I want to be. And the people that support me who do these interviews, each day I learn more and more about myself and I'm doing something great. I'm making an impact. If I help one person, to me, it's, be it's better than nothing because one person can lead into a domino effect and it just keeps on going and nothing's gonna stop me. I mean, I'm gonna, mm -hmm. do, I'm getting over that mountain. I'm gonna do everything. And I kind of like that line. And now it makes me want to go listen to that song. You should, honestly, like really, like not even about like self-promotion. I mean, because really my passion is, I don't want you to just listen to a song just because I did it. If it actually is going to help you. Correct. That, that makes sense. Like as a new mantra, you know? And so we have lyric videos for all of those, those songs that you can find on my YouTube channel, just Jennifer McGill, but also of course it's streaming and that song's called what I know now. Um, and actually what I did with that video is um, I took a photo journey of myself from when I was itty bitty and so you start seeing um, the second verse starts talking about 
people are quick to shame. Mm -hmm. Don't play by their rules. No, don't play their game. Right. Like that's kind of where it goes. All right. Now around that lyric is where I start showing you around when I was 12. And that that was the age when people started saying, you know, you might be a little pudgy. Okay. And then I keep growing and growing and growing. You know, I get older and older through the song, but I was very purposeful in placing those, those pictures in a certain order because this really is a love song to that little girl. And really like that was the birth of that song. That was why I started writing it. But I have not met someone that I can't say those words to and not find a way that it can help them just stay, you know, stay strong in that, in that journey. Because it's really about you prepping and prepping and drilling what's most important to you so that when it's the right time in the right place, you're ready. Yeah. Versus I have to be famous right now or everything has to fall into place today. You know, that's not like, that's not how it works. That's not reality. Yeah. It's not all just going to fall together every moment of the day, but my life would have been very different had I not had this opportunity with the Mickey Mouse Club. And I can't tell you that I made that happen right? I saw my audition tape a few years ago. I have no idea what they were talking. Like, I don't see the, oh my gosh, I have to have this kid in the show. I don't see it, right? Because I'm just this little girl, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not even singing a really high song. They must have already known, like, whatever I did, you know, was just some other epic, something that they didn't show in this edit that they put together. But what I did have was my microphone and I had a secret. I could tell in my eyes, I was kind of looking to the side, so I could tell even from just that moment, maybe that's what they meant. Maybe they just needed to find something a little deeper in someone's eyes. Maybe I'm the blonde haired, blue eyed white girl that it made sense to hire out of the 50 bajillion that you had on tape, you know? I can't, I can't busy myself with why I was chosen just as much as other people, including me, can't busy ourselves why we were not chosen for something. It's a waste of time. But you take that opportunity to learn what worked, what didn't. You take the next opportunity to try something new, to get better at what you do. Every time you fall, if you learn from that, it is not a wasted opportunity. It is not for nothing. And I want to say, like, the biggest thing that I learned was it's okay to have negative things impact you. It's okay that things happen in the world that are not perfect because this is the imperfect world we live in. It's not going to be perfect this side of heaven, but don't let those things stay. You can feel sad. You can have a bad day where you don't like what you see in the mirror or you think, man, I could have done that thing better. Gosh, I wish I knew this already, but don't let it stay because when it stays, it starts to become truth that's where we all can unite and help each other, including be aware within our own selves of that difference between, okay, I understand that you have this moment, but we as a people aren't going to let you stay there. We're not going to let you stay in that dark place. That's not going to become your new truth. You know, that was the turning table for me. Each and it's that simple. Yeah. Each day I mean, our past, we learn from it and you kind of have to say, okay, that happened. Now let's continue on and let's pave the way towards the future. And yeah, everyone has had those, a job opportunity that I've had, which wasn't the best opportunity, but in that time, it was the best for my life at that moment. But I've learned from that. And when I talk to people about it, they're like, oh, okay, I can see why maybe you struggled or, and then we are learning from those opportunities each day. So. I totally agree with yeah. that. 
easier said than done. We totally get it that it's absolutely easier said than done, yeah. but it's a simple mantra. You can feel your feelings. That is absolutely allowed. Don't let them stay. So yeah. what does the future look like for you professionally and personally? What are your like next year, five year goals that you want to set for yourself? So this year, the current goals are really love on milestone melodies as a company, really nurture that baby, let it grow. My husband and I are looking for our first home together, our first house. So we're excited to find a, a suburb of Nashville that fits the bill because we've dreamed of having our, just our happy space, that it's a home that we own and that we can make our own. We can build our business through that home. We both love working from home. And so that's really this year. Um, what I currently am in the middle of is I am president of PCG Online, which is a branch of PCG Artist Development. Uh, which I am still the director of client success for. And so what we do at PCG, it is, it's recording artist development. We train young people usually, usually it's, it's a younger crowd. We train them to become independent, fully rounded recording artists. So they know everything from the styling, from the royalties and the business of that, how to promote themselves, but also not forgetting the inside to the outside ratio where you have got to understand your boundaries here before we put you in front of a record label so that you know who you're, who you want to be and you'll be able to interpret very easily if that particular opportunity doesn't line up with your boundaries and who, what you stand for, right? That was the element that I had been missing as a recording artist. So part of my job is to monitor that all of those sessions and all of that training is happening, right? Um, and then with PCG Online, being the president of that, you know, I'm, I'm basically just overseeing the operations of this glorious booking portal that right now phase one is in-house, but eventually we want to open that up to the public so that everyone, even if you're not in one of our tuition-based programs, can experience the training that we have to offer. Because of course, I want everyone who wants to learn something in that business to be able to to have part of what we offer, of course, you know. So that's a huge baby that I'm growing as well, you know, just keeping us on that trajectory of being able to reach more and more people outside of our, our core tuition-based full-time clients. Um, so that's the big job, that and Milestone Melodies. And as always, I privately coach both in vocal and speeching and mentoring. Um, I worship lead when I can. And just in this big... Uh, season of, I would say, isolation, but also really taking a step back and observing how we can really help groups that may be outside of what we identify with. And in that way, I've started doing a monthly Stage It concert. It's a benefit concert where all proceeds are divided evenly between the NAACP and No Kid Hungry. No Kid Hungry is basically an organization where when children are out of school for so long, when they've been kept away from those free meals, mm -hmm. this organization comes in and helps with feeding much more than just that type of formula, but you know, they, they feed children. And so I'm, I'm happy about that. <laughs> and um, then I will match one of those donations with my own money and give to pastors discipleship network because my cousin is very passionate about the Ugandan communities who are currently starving. He has some pastors 
who are working on location there. So I, I wanted to try to help even out that far, um, just, you know, based on that inspiration from my cousin. So that's what I'm doing, you know, in the meantime, in between time, I suppose it, it's both personal, but also professional. Cause I want to build an online community who cares, but that we can also get together and sing nineties Mickey Mouse club hits and I can <laughs> sing other songs and we can just be fun, you know, but, but in the end, we have money to give to other people while we've been having that fun. And again, I love multitasking. So that's perfect for me. Keeping yourself busy during this time. Yeah. Can you believe I actually sleep too? It's awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do we all? I don't think I sleep. <laughs> I'm good at it. It's kind of crazy. Maybe that's why I get so much done. I can't tell. Oh. Some people get, mu get much done with, with almost no sleep. I'm not there yet. <laughs> we'll see. Give me a year. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I mean, I... If, as long as I get five hours, I'm good, but yeah. don't expect a lot of me from the beginning. You got to give me some energy drinks or something. Right. Yes. Yeah. I like to say that I'm kind of a 12 to eight worker, but really it's more like eight to eight. <laughs> <laughs> it's really what ends up happening. <laughs> I feel like with my, the company I work for, we work like after hours and I'm like, okay, is this email important enough to answer right now? But it's kind of like, yeah. During this time, you just have to do whatever you can to keep on going, I guess, during this time. And I think that that's been a personal goal for me is to learn how to say no, especially coming from a people-pleasing background and really caring about everyone being okay, like being happy and being satisfied, especially through my connection with them and being able to say, okay, that email can wait till Monday. Okay, that call can wait until this particular hour. It's not... It, it's a, it's a switching of my focus away from having to make everything a priority. That's been very difficult. But when I don't do that, that's when I start unraveling. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I can't imagine. I mean, I'm not a mommy, but if I were a mommy, I cannot imagine not making your child the priority over anything else. And I know it's a struggle with mixing work and family and, and my students, you know, I have a lot of kids if you count all my students, you know, and being able to make sufficient quality time for everything that needs to be taken care of. I believe it does take a little bit of organization, if not a lot. And so I do encourage people to really evaluate, okay, what can wait? What is, what needs to happen right now? What can wait? What could I even just let go of for now and see if it floats back up later? That can be very hard to do when you want to do everything. Uh, but yeah, being able to say no or to categorize and prioritize, I think that's a huge talent. And you do have to practice that if it does not come naturally. For someone in the industry that you're in, what tips or advice would you give them to rise to their challenge? I think the first and foremost is really pick the most really pick the most specific version of your biggest dream so like for me if i wanted to be a recording artist and let's say that whole mickey mouse club thing didn't happen to like mess it all up <laughs> just kidding but you know let's say i wasn't sidetracked yeah. um if i'm a recording artist and or if i want to be a recording artist in this day and age i would want to pick the big big goal what is exactly what does that look like that dream visualize where you want to go that's first so you know what you're striving for but then you need to look at the first i call it baby step 
because I want my brain to, to deescalate as much as I can from having pressure mm -hmm. about that goal. Okay. Maybe your first goal is a Google search for artist development training or how to be a recording artist, YouTube or songwriting, right? Like just whatever this dream is, I want to be Whitney Houston, but writing songs and I want to play the piano. Okay, cool. So then you can start looking at those first steps. Do I play the piano? Do I write songs? How well do I sing? Are you in vocal coaching? Are you in piano lessons? Are you working with even a friend or a family member to start looking at songwriting? So 101, just make sure that you're at least growing in that capacity. And then you want to find the next step. So if we look at that in general, it's the same thing with any with anything. If you want to be um, a, a therapist, if you want to be um, at a certain college, right? If you're looking to move to a certain state or you want a certain kind of home, yeah. right? What is the first step? What, what am I qualified to do? What are my financials? What's my budget? How is it? How, what do I even have to work with? That's going to delegate which next step of training you need to look for. Cause most likely there's something you need to learn before you walk into that next, that next career or that next step, that next job. Um, so yeah, I would say training and then connections and then be ready when the opportunity comes because it may not come on your schedule. Yeah. Everything will happen when the timing is right or when it is able to be accessed basically. Yeah. And I do agree. This is something I've wrestled with for years. It is who you know in the business, not just how great you are at what you do. You have to be able to open and communicate and share and promote yourself, especially in this day and age of social media. You've got to be able to share what you're working on and bring people to connect to what you do. Find forums. I mean, look at how we found each other. It's because I took a step and said, you know what? I want to talk to a few more people. I'm going to go join a forum and I'm going to find some people that I really like and we're going to have discussions about what matters, which is rising to the challenge, right? That's, that's absolutely why we're here is because I absolutely connected with what you had to say. You went out on a limb and you put your podcast together so that we could even have this opportunity, you know? So there's always this first step that came before this particular opportunity was able to happen. Yeah. And that's the same for any kind of goal. You want training, then you need to put yourself out there and know some people who know some other people who can connect you with the right people. And then no matter what, be ready, be ready whenever the opportunity arises. Networking has been like something that I live every day. If it's on the site that we met in LinkedIn and social media, any way that I can put what I do out there, um, it's the best thing because maybe they, even just them seeing my post, that's the one eyeball looking at it. And you never know what can happen. I, I love when I get feedback saying, I just listened to your episode, great job. And then it starts the communication and then now they want to be on the show. It's like, I didn't have to do, I didn't have to do much. I just had to be passionate about what I'm doing and get out there. And I'm so excited that I was the first one for you on that site. I know, this is my first one. I know, I, I love I it. I have been, I'm enjoying every, like I, I'm one of those people that when I listen to the episodes over again, I'm always taking notes and you can learn something from everyone. And I'm at that stage and I think we're both similar. We're, we're growing, we're learning new things every day. And you kind of have to, no one's perfect. No one knows everything. 
So I enjoy it. The final, As do I. The yeah, final go ahead. question I have for you. From your journey through Mouseketeers or the Mickey Mouse Club to your education to what you do now, for someone that's listening to this interview, what tips or advice would you give them to rise to their challenge, to overcome obstacles and accomplish their goals? To me, what has kept me from anything I've wanted, number one problem, number one challenge is fear. Mm -hmm. And fear for me is usually translated into fear of failure. So what if they don't like me? What if it looks stupid once I finish with it? What if I work out all this time and I still look fat? That's a hard what if to overcome when you're putting it into that untruth that you think is true, which is that I'm a failure, right? I'm never going to be good enough or I'm always going to be too much, which was my root problem. So when I think about becoming a recording artist, I was afraid of what everyone would think. I was afraid of rejection. And I was afraid of losing my identity if there was nothing else after being a recording artist. It's almost like I was paralyzed, mm -hmm. you know? Fear, think about it. You either fight or you run away or you just get paralyzed and nothing happens, which is like running away. So when you think about what fear does to us, I'm pretty much sure that everyone fits into one of those categories when they're looking at what happens to them when they're dealing with challenges. So I would say that the way to overcome fear is very different for all of us, but it's always internal first. Think about it. Everything I've talked about has started from my inside process versus worrying about the other people outside of me as far as rebuilding and recalibrating what I need. Um, when it comes to my faith, that's an inside thing. That's something that I, my soul talks to you know, my creator, I, I hear and feel from that spirituality, hopefully all the time, like just a constant piece of who I am, you know, and I've had to work to build that openness about it. I've had to work to be in that place where I feel supported and I know that I'm loved and uh, purposeful, no matter how I'm feeling that I, I understand that, that ultimate truth. Right. So that really changes a lot of perspective right away that maybe it's not the way that you're, you're, you have visualized it's going to happen, but maybe God has another plan within that. And also to know that, hey, this world is never perfect. So if you're expecting perfection in everything you do and everything you present, you're going to be let down every time. So I would say between really getting your inside right, where you are seeing yourself in a positive light, you're seeing how you were created in a positive light, and you're able to love on other people in a positive light. Love God, love yourself, love others. That's how I teach it, right? Until you're there, there's no point in trying to force some outside goal. Because until you understand how wonderful you are, and then are able to love and forgive not only yourself, which is really hard sometimes, but everybody else. And to know that you have like an like a completely full tank of strength all the time in your faith, right? Until that's happening, a lot of that fear will still be this close to you. It'll just still be so close. But when you're past that moment and you, and you have a, a great day, 
with your, with your faith and that stability that you know that you are here for a purpose that you have so much to offer, then you're going to find that mental strength to take that next step. And remember it's a small one, small baby step, small step. Great. You check that off next small step, right? Every day you get your inside, right. And then the outside's going to benefit. I think so many people just want to go for that main goal and they, yeah. they're like, well, how do I get there now? And it's kind of like you said, you've got to take that main goal and then do that development process. How do you do those baby steps? How am I going to eventually get there? Because a lot of people, it's not, like for sport athletes, they're not going to, I'm going to become the MVP of the next World Series. Well, how are you going to get there? You're just not going to show up on the field and hit homers and all of that and everything. So definitely, definitely can use that advice that you gave. And I would say based on athletes as well as young recording artists, you know, there's, there is a time frame, right? You, you do have almost an expiration date. It's loose. It's a loosely based expiration date, but appreciating that there are some timelines like that as far as you needing to accomplish your goal, but, but dealing with that type of fear, right? It's possible that you might have to wing it a little bit, that mm -hmm. you may have to take a baby step inside and then take a baby step outside, another baby step inside and a baby step outside, almost like fake it till you make it, but without being fake inside, right? Mm -hmm. But you may have to push for your timeline, but, but you still have to push from the inside out, right? It's just like singing. We talk about um, when you sing uh, and you're yelling, you're really using your throat to push your air, but really where it comes from is inside way deeper and lower than up here, right? And if we use the right parts of us to make that effort and push, the whole process is easier and we're not hurting ourselves while we're, while we're pushing. So, I mean, that is something I can appreciate that there are certain timelines, but that doesn't mean that you start out of fear and, and, and go blindly forth. Remember, bravery comes from pushing through fear. Yep. It's the presence of fear that makes you brave because you're pushing through it. If there's no fear, there's not really bravery. You're just doing what you do and it's awesome. You can still be awesome. <laughs> you know, like when I do a lyric video, I'm not brave. I know I'm doing it great, you know, um, but it's that fear. I'm brave when I sing because believe it or not, I still manage anxiety. No one would ever know that I have stage fright or that I'm extremely uncomfortable before I step on stage because I'm worried I'm going to forget something or something's gonna go wrong. It has, some, it has been something I've had my entire life since seven years old stepping on a pageant stage, but no one would ever know. And I teach anxiety management for performers because I've lived it. And I can understand that it's in there. It's okay that it's in there. Don't let it stay. Don't let it hold on, push through it. And that's what makes you brave. Wow, wow. <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot. I know, it's a lot. <laughs> well, Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and telling us and talking about your Rise to the Challenge journey that you've been on. I have definitely learned a lot and the listeners are going to enjoy getting an insight look in your life and what you've gone through. And I'm excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you so much. I hope you listen to some of those songs and watch some of those videos and let me know how you like them. I will definitely do that. Thank you. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember, you can follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure you follow us on our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? 
you decide.